Welcome to Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host and the co-author of the book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Rebecca Bernard. A few months ago, EM Rapp, a well-known and respected emergency medicine CME provider, hosted a discussion about non-physician practitioners in the emergency room. Many physicians who listened felt it was one-sided and glossed over concerns about independent practice by nurse practitioners and physician assistants. Dr. Steve Carroll was so concerned that he reached out to the program to ask for a more nuanced discussion. And to their credit, the program did allow him to come on and discuss some of the concerns that he had about the initial episode. So today we'll discuss the EM rap episode that caused so much controversy and Dr. Carroll's response. Steve, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. Steve, can we start out by having you tell us a little bit about your background and just tell us about what EM RAP is? Sure. So as far as my background, I basically started as a EMT when I was 17 years old. I Even before I got my EMT, I was on basically went to an ambulance company, volunteered. And for my first call, I loved it. And I said, I want to be an emergency medicine doctor. And from then on, it was just, that was my path. Um, and so uh, college, med school, I went to medical school at Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. I was on an army scholarship. So I did my residency with the army in San Antonio, Texas. I spent two years at Fort Hood after my residency um, as a brigade surgeon, and then two years back as emergency medicine core faculty at my residency program in San Antonio. And then I moved to Atlanta, uh, where I spent four years working at Emory, where my primary site was Grady, which is their big level one trauma center in uh, downtown Atlanta. And then about a year ago, my wife and I moved up to the Philadelphia area, um, where we're both from. And uh, she's a pediatric ICU physician. Uh, She works at DuPont, and I work at Crozier Chester Medical Center, uh, which is uh, just outside of Philadelphia at their residency program. We're a level two trauma center. Uh, We've had a residency program for about four years. Wow, that's an amazing background. And it's so interesting that you've always known that you were passionate about emergency medicine. It it really is true. I mean, I literally showed up looking to volunteer my time. And the, the story that I tell is that I basically showed up and they were giving me a uniform and they said, hey, we have a call. And uh, I was literally going up the stairs, my boots half on, and they said, hey, we have a cardiac arrest. And I said, oh, wow. Fortunately, it's just someone who passed down the street. But um, to be clear, I hadn't even had any like CPR training or anything at that point. I was just like an extra set of hands. And uh, so I was like, I I said, this is awesome. This is what I want to do as a You just knew that was for you. I just knew. So EM RAP is a CME program that's like a subscription program. Is that right? Correct. So I did a little digging on this and they've been doing their program since 2001. It's been going on for 20 years. And I, I do know that when they first started off, they were even like mailing cassettes and CDs to people. Like this is what they were doing back in the day, even before they had the, uh, before everyone had smartphones. So it's a monthly uh, paid uh, CME podcast that is very well done. Um, it's about roughly three to four hours each month. And they really kind of get the experts and the great educators of emergency medicine to be on there. And I use it a lot as a resident. I use still use it now as an attending to, to stay up to date. And it's a really quality podcast. And I, I really liked it. But the episode that they had just really kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And uh, Yeah, not just you, but a lot of other physicians as well. So basically, just to, to understand that this CME 
is something that's really popular. It's something many emergency doctors listen to, and not only emergency doctors, but any, I guess, also nurse practitioners, physician assistants, um, nurses, maybe as well. Yeah. So all sorts of different people that work in the emergency room. So it's, it's definitely a big deal. And so tell us about the episode that rubbed you the wrong way and a lot of other doctors too. Sure. So they uh, published an episode that was what is called Rick's Rants, which is done by Rick Bucata. So he's a a very well-known emergency medicine physician who, even before MRAP started in 1988, uh, he started with emergency medicine abstracts where they would go through different studies. But he's also done a lot of like risk management work, lots of educational uh, materials for like risk management, like for medical directors and emergency departments. And so he has on kind of a mishmash of different topics each month, and they're called Rick's Rants because he gets to rant about stuff. So he had two episodes on um, one one episode per month done by Mike and Martha, who are an NP and a PA, who were talking about the function of nurse practitioners and PAs in the emergency department. And the main thrust was that they felt that the organizations that were speaking out against independent practice were being rude and mean and not encouraging people to be team players. And so specifically, they targeted AEM's statement about uh, nurse practitioners and PAs should always be working in physician-led teams. And the other thing that I think really uh, stood out to me was that they were basically saying this whole independent practice thing is just not a big deal. We're not pushing for independent practice. Uh, we're not looking to practice solely without a physician. And you know that was the point where my blood pressure went through the roof. And I think a lot of people commented online. They said that you know they, one person said I almost crashed my car when when that came on because. We just, as you know, this is just not what the national organizations are pushing. The ANP and the AAPA are very aggressive with wanting independent practice for NPs and PAs. And so I just did not agree with this. I've been a longtime member of uh, PPP. And so I reached out to MRAP and they responded. And I said, you know, I said, can we do an interview for balance on this? And they said, great. And we set something up. And then it was published a couple of weeks ago as a, what they call a mid-month snack. So like kind of a snack in between the main main courses. So unfortunately, their episodes were on the main monthly podcast. Mine was on the mid-month, but um, I got a lot of feedback from it. People listened to it. And I think people saw um, the topic and really um, did engage with it. And so, you know, I think it's been a great way to get this out, these ideas out there to a pretty large audience. Yeah, I'm so glad that you did that. And some of the feedback that I saw from physicians was that at first MRAP didn't seem like they were really that responsive to concerns that some doctors said that they tried posting, I guess they must there must be a comment board and that yeah. they weren't letting them post their comments. So what do you think it was about you that opened their, their mind to talking about the issue more? Um, I'm not really sure. I think uh, it was probably just that I emailed Rick directly. And I also emailed Mel Herbert who runs MRAP directly. And I, and I said, you know, in a, in a very professional way, I said, you know, I really disagree with what was on. Can we do an interview? I'd happy, I'd be happy to, to either record something myself or do an interview. And they were, uh, they reached right back out and said, yeah, sure. And to be clear. So one thing MRAP, I think everyone kind of knows about MRAP is that they, they're like six months ahead. They schedule stuff like they record stuff to be six months ahead. So they're never going to be like at the wire. So my episode came out only a couple months after theirs. So they, you know, made some effort to make this 
happen faster than they usually do. Although it's, like I said, it wasn't on the main episode. It was kind of like an extra special episode. Um, but they were very responsive once to it. And Rick, I think, has some kind of complicated thoughts on the issue. He actually agreed with me more than I thought he would. And we can kind of talk about that. But uh, it was, you know, it was an interesting experience. And him and I had a great talk. And it was very collegial, professional. And I just felt like I was just going to get the right information out there. And the way I see it, the way to discuss this is to keep it fact-based. If you get emotional on this, if you start going off the rails, you just lose all credibility. So you state facts. 500 clinical hours for an MP, 2,000 for a PA, 13,000 plus for a physician. And you walk people, I, I feel like it's important to walk people through numbers because as physicians, we only think of numbers of years of practice. And yes, like, you know, four years of medical school plus three years residency at a minimum is seven, which is way more than, say, a, a PA or an MP. But we don't think in clinical hours, but the NP and the PA side do. And so I think it's important. So I just break it down. You know, let's say you only, you know, conservatively, you only do 40 hours a week in medical school. We all know that a lot of us do a lot more than that. Let's just say that. Let's say you do, you know, two weeks of vacation. So that's 50 weeks a year. So that's 2,000 hours a year in medical school times two, 4,000 in medical school. And then in residency, let's say 60 hours is a conservative estimate. And, you know, 60 times um, 50 weeks, you got, you know, 3,000 hours there. So that's that's how you make the argument that, you know, it's like at a conservative estimate, 13,000 clinical hours for a physician. And that's the number that I use. I know that it's, it's 15,000 is probably a more realistic, but I feel like you want to make sure you do this conservatively so that you make people see like there's a big difference in between 500 and 13,000. A huge Um, difference. And, you know, one of the things that some commenters shared on uh, when we were discussing this online was that they think it's really important to discuss the hour difference, but that the hours are completely different in what we're doing as far as what you're doing in medical school residency versus what you're doing as a nurse practitioner or possibly as a PA. Can you address a little bit about some of that difference? Yes. One of the issues that I think we're seeing a lot with like NP, especially with the NP diploma mill programs is that people are expected to find their own clinical hours and there's not any quality control over them. You know, we have lots of documented cases of people getting signed off on their clinical hours while they're working as a bedside nurse, being paid to be a bedside nurse, or that people are just signing them off without actually doing their hours. I mean, that's something like that just does not happen in medical school. Yes, you can do electives where you find your own rotations, but it's not the expectation for your entire training program. There is quality control and they make sure that you're actually going to this to your rotation sites and actually doing the work. But there's just not that quality control on the on, on the NP side. I think on the PA side, there's probably a little more when you talk about brick and mortar programs. But once again, 2000 versus 13,000, it's, it's not hard to see the huge difference there. Yeah, there's so much variability among nurse practitioner training in particular. I think about Antoinette Thompson, who was involved with the patient uh, Alexis Ochoa, who died when her pulmonary embolus was not diagnosed. Now, uh, Antoinette Thompson was working in an emergency department, but her 500 hours that she did were working in a county health department, taking care of pregnant, healthy women providing prenatal care. That has absolutely nothing to do with providing emergency care, and yet somehow she was credentialed to work in that role. So I think 
the lack of standardization, the fact that you could just do one-to-one preceptorship with really any, could be a physician, could be a nurse practitioner, and it doesn't seem to really matter who they are or what they're doing in their office. Exactly. And, um, you know, I think that was one thing I wish I would have been able to talk a little more about on the podcast were the details of that case, because my name is Steve Carroll. I've made mistakes. We've all made mistakes. Some of them have had grave consequences for patients. I'm not immune to this. No one is. But when you look at that case in particular, if you say this case to a first-year medical student, like they're going to pick up on the fact that this was a pulmonary embolism. And so there's a difference between between a mistake and sheer incompetence or never being trained in the first place. And when you go through the list of errors that was made, I mean, at one point she had, she was in sinus tachycardia, you know, 150, and she was given adenosine and biltiazem. I mean, this is, this is not even intern level knowledge. This is like medical, you know, you know, I would expect a medical student to propose that course of action, maybe like, maybe like a first, you know, this is what happens when somebody doesn't understand why a person is having tachycardia. You just see tachycardia and you think, Oh, I better slow that heart rate down. Meanwhile, her heart rate was fast because she was trying to get oxygen (laughs) to her body and slowing it down. Her heart rate down was actually counterproductive and it made her worse. So if you don't understand the why, and this is why fund of knowledge and fundamentals are so important. And I'd like you to address a little bit of this idea because you have people that are acknowledging, yes, we don't have enough hours. So why don't we get some more training by doing a quote residency program? And I just go back to this, you know, if you don't understand pathophysiology, it's not, you can't just follow algorithms. You need to have those critical thinking skills that come from having this really strong fund of knowledge. Exactly. And so I will always argue that more education is always best. So for the past decade, I've been running a podcast called EM Basic, where I just go through core content emergency medicine. It was actually one of the first podcasts of its kind. I started as a senior resident in 2011 when I was when I was uh, thinking to myself, you know, I would really like to get in this podcasting game, but you know, what can I talk about on a knowledgeable basis? And I was literally walking the, my, uh, our dogs with my wife and it just kind of came to me. I was like, I'll just talk about the basics. And I said, you know, I thought, I, I bet someone's already done this, but turns out no one had. So I just went for it. And um, I'll admit over the past couple of years, my, the production is kind of, the number of episodes I've done has trailed off, but now there are lots of podcasts doing it. So my point in saying this is that I'm always going to be supportive of more education. What I fear is that we're going to say, oh, these fellowships so it's even better than a residency. Like my wife is fellowship trained in pediatric ICU and, and cardiac ICU care. Okay. So she was a PGY seven. That's to, to say like that a NP or PA is doing a fellowship is just really kind of the terminology matters here. And, and I think the us physicians get accused of, uh, we don't own the word fellowship. We don't own the word doctor, but like terms matter. So even getting past that, you know, some of these residencies and fellowships for NPs and PAs, you know, they're they're on the order of one year, 18 months. And, you know, if they're really doing the hours that, um, you know, the, the, the actual residents are, that, that's great. It's still not nearly as much training as a physician is going to get. And I just go back to number of clinical hours. And, you know, like, for example, at, UN, at UNC, they were proposing, I believe it was PA- fellowship in emergency medicine, pretty sure it was PA and came out that they were going to pay the PA fellows more than a PGY three EM resident, senior resident. 
And that just really kind of put people in an uproar. It didn't sound like things were done properly. And I don't want to dive too deep into this because it was a very complicated situation. I don't want to say, say the wrong thing. But I think that kind of really opened people's eyes to the fact that these programs are being started and they're being started for the wrong reasons. Now, if the right reasons are, listen, I'm really passionate about emergency medicine. I want to be the best PA or MP I can be. Let's work in a physician-led team. And great. And that's that's the thing I always come back to is I think the way to keep people on your side is to be very upfront and very clear is that I am not anti-NP or anti-PA. I never have been. Uh, what I disagree with is that what I say is that NPs and PAs should not be practicing independently. They should be practicing on a physician-led team. And if you disagree with that, that's great. Let's have a discussion. But it's, you know, it's hard to kind of say that I'm coming at this in bad faith because I'm it's a it's a non-emotional argument. Down you know, numbers, Rick, Rick said that he agreed with you 100%. The host, he said, absolutely. But what's interesting is on the initial podcast that you were concerned about, he didn't, I don't think he had a lot to say when, well, I guess the NPs and PAs were kind of saying, well, we don't really want to be independent, but their academies and their leaders are absolutely pushing for independence. And so one of the things that they were upset about was the AAEM putting out a statement saying that that care should be physician led. And I just want to read this statement from it was a combination joint statement from the Emergency Nurses Association and the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. And they said, quote, Our national organizations strongly oppose the view that emergency care is solely, quote, physician-led or that physicians should dictate education and practice standards for advanced practice registered nurses. So to me, that's very clear, them saying, stay out of it. You know, we'll do what we're going to do and you don't need to tell us what to do. And I mean, maybe those particular NPs and PAs are saying they don't believe that, but this is a national an organization that represents them saying this. Yes, and these nat- the national organizations are going state by state, picking them off one by one, and they're convincing people at state legislature levels that it's okay to have only five hundred clinical hours of training. It's okay to do a to take a degree in anything. You could have a degree in finance, do a one year um, accelerated BSN, and then go to nurse practitioner school and then be seeing patients independently in, in less than three years. And it's like, when you tell that to a physician, it just, it blows your mind because it's like, that's not safe. You know, 500 clinical hours is, you know, probably the first six weeks of my internship. Does anyone want someone who's had six weeks of internship under their belt seeing a patient? No, if that happened in an academic hospital, the nurses would revolt. And so I just don't see how this is just allowed. And then, you know, just to be clear, the the PA side, I think, is trying to be a little more diplomatic. The NP side, I mean, it's they're going out guns blazing. They, They don't hide the fact that they want full practice authority from day one. The PA side has been a little more tempered. They're calling it optimal team practice which basically says that it's up to the individual PA to determine whether they consult with a physician, that you shouldn't be required to have a specific relationship with a physician or anyone else. Well, guess what? That's independent practice. Like I decide when I have to practice, when I have to consult with other physicians. And so if you're saying that you're doing the same thing, then you're just, it's just independent practice under a different name. And they have extended the olive branch where they said, if a PA sees a patient without physician input, the physician shouldn't be liable, which is nice, but it's a pipe dream because the reality is, is that state legislatures and the lawyers who have much 
better lobbies than we do, are going to demand that we continue the practice of pulling physicians into cases of NP and PA malpractice, even when you never saw the patient. And I just think that's wrong. And, you know, I just think that PAs are kind of shooting themselves in the foot with this because, number one, physicians and physician assistants have always had a very strong relationship. We've always enjoyed working together, I think, on both ends of it. And I think what's going to happen to PAs because of this attempt by their leadership to increase their flexibility is what they really want. But what's going to happen is they're going to get taken advantage of by corporations that are going to say, oh, great, you don't need a physician to be involved with your care. So here you go. Go ahead and see all these really complicated patients. They're going to throw them into the deep end without giving them the benefit of having a physician backup. And I think that's already happening. I spoke with a PA who acknowledged that her first job, they hired her in an academic center. And she said that she was expected to perform at the quote, fellow level. She was a brand new PA grad. And that basically she resigned from that position because she realized that she could not uh, achieve what they expected of her. And I really see, again, this is just an opportunity for corporations and even academic centers, unfortunately, to get a less expensive labor, even though maybe the patients aren't going to get the best quality of care. Exactly. We're seeing that kind of eroding into, into the academic centers. I mean, not talking about any one place in particular. And, uh, you know, I would just want to be clear that, you know, my, my employer, this really hasn't been a, a huge issue where I work, but like we're seeing a lot of places that PAs and MPs are being given priority for procedures of a residence. And, you know, they tried to publish a study saying that this isn't the case, but like we, we see it daily on the PPP Facebook group where residents are telling us that they're being looked over for procedures and and patients to the preference of the of the MPs and PAs when they're in these like training programs. Yeah, or even when they're not in training programs. It's definitely going to affect the future generations of physicians if they don't have access to those procedures and I I'm very concerned about that. Yeah. Now you talk, you had a couple of main points. You talked about clinical hours being significantly different. You talked about these new diploma mills and these direct to nurse practitioner programs. And one of the other things you talked about was a lack of transparency and that patients really often don't know that they're not seeing a physician. Can you talk about some of your concerns on that? My concerns are just, are just as you said, patients are not aware of the training involved and the training differences in between physicians and PAs and MPs, and they need to be. I'm not saying that patients, you know, that MPs and PAs need to go away or not be in medicine. Like I'm saying that there just needs to be a physician there uh, for consultation. And I'll, I'll admit in the emergency department, like I may not see hundred percent of the patients that the MPs and PAs see, but I'm there for consultation. But what the AMP and the AAPAs want to argue is that it would be okay to staff an emergency department with solely an MP or a PA. And when you do that, you get the Alexis Ochoa case. So that's, you know, that's what I want people to know that to be educated on training differences and to know that, you know, you have the right to say, like, can I speak to the attending physician if, if you feel like something's not going right? Or if you just want someone to double check with, you know, what's going on. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with a second opinion. And even if you're talking with a physician and you ask for a second opinion, if if it's a good doctor, most doctors would be happy to provide that for you. We don't want patients to have concerns about their care. You were talking about working collaboratively or working, being able for being available for consultation. 
In your ER or in ERs across the country in general, are NPs and PAs sort of just seeing patients? Are they just randomly assigned or are they supposed to be seeing lower acuity patients? How does that usually work? It, it just depends on the department. Some departments have where the, the PAs and the MPs are, are only seeing fast track patients. Others have the situation where you're, they're seeing patients side by side with, with the physician. Sometimes that, so we classify patients level one to five. Level one is the sickest, level five is not, not sick. When you're talking about fast track patients, those are usually level fours, level fives. Level threes tend to be a little more complicated. Levels ones and twos are critically ill in some manner. You know, there's some places where the NPs and PAs are still are seeing level ones and level twos. I mean, with physician supervision, the argument I would say is that if your ER is having your NPs and PAs see a lot of level ones and level twos, then shouldn't you just have another physician on? Even if they are being supervised, it's like, these are the sickest of the sickest patients. And I, I would argue that if, if your NPs and PAs are seeing a lot of those, then you probably just need more physician coverage. I and know if I'm a, if I'm in the ER and I'm really really sick, like I'm going to go to intensive care or even just get admitted to the hospital, I would really hope that a physician is going to at least come in and poke their head in at me and uh, I'm ideally treat yeah. you know, do all of my evaluation, but at a minimum see me. Yeah, exactly. And this is what we're seeing is that if we're not, it's not like we're seeing. Although this has, ha- I've seen this happen on the anesthesia side. I've, I saw a case where they basically came in and eliminated all physicians and replaced them all with CRNAs. And, but in the emergency department, we're not seeing quite that wholesale replacement. What we are seeing is that instead of having, you know, two physicians on each shift, it's now a physician and an MP or PA. Instead of, uh, I don't know, 48 hours of physician coverage, it's 24 hours and the rest is an MP or PA. So that's what we're seeing is that we're seeing slow, steady replacement of physician hours of coverage with NPs and PAs. And that's the thing I think we have to be worried about. You know, let's talk a little bit, because I don't think you got into this on the podcast about scientific literature. We see a lot and we hear a lot from advocates saying that the literature is robust and that nurse practitioners and PAs can do the same as be provide the same care as physicians. What are your, what's your take on those statements? So uh, I, I disagree with them. I will admit that I have not fully done the deep dive that others have done on this, where they've looked at like the individual studies, but this is on the websites. This has actually been very well done. And I think linking to some of those would be really valuable. The overall summary is, is that the studies that have been done have never truly compared truly independent NPs and PAs. They've had some level of physician oversight. And when they have been studied, these have been, uh, in one study, it was NPs that had been specifically trained for about a year by physicians in a structured program that was almost like an internship before they were off seeing patients. And then they were seeing them for like a half a day, like, and and they weren't full carrying a full clinical load. And there was still physician oversight. Um, And this is the Mundinger study that I think we, we, like to talk about a lot that is really kind of pointed as the gold standard. And there's just a lot of problems with that study or the studies will look at minor differences in blood pressure measurements. It's like, well, the nurse practitioners had their blood, their systolic blood pressure in their patients was, you know, 1.5 points lower, which is clinically meaningless and not a good measure of care. 
Um, and like no one, no, no patient cares or their body does not care about a systolic blood pressure difference of 1.5. The broad strokes are that the literature is of very poor quality and there has never truly been a study with completely independent NPs and PAs that have not had any physician backup. I think what always makes me laugh in a way is the way they come up with these outlandish conclusions to these studies. So I have one I want to run past you that I just found it's not a new study, but I just came upon it. It's from 2010 from the Journal of Emergency Nursing, and it's called Diagnostic Accuracy of Emergency Nurse Practitioners Versus Physicians Related to Minor Illnesses and Injuries. And so what they did was they divided uh, 741 patients treated by nurse practitioners and about 741 by, they call it junior doctors, staff, house officers, so resident physicians. And I don't think they say how experience they were. And they basically put them into two groups and they found that the junior doctors made nine errors. The nurse practitioners made 20 errors. It wasn't, I guess, a large enough group for that to be statistically significant, but ultimately what they said was that the summary conclusion was nurse practitioners showed high diagnostic accuracy and no significant differences in management were detected. So basically that's not number one. Uh, it was minor, minor issues. And there was a more than double error rate for minor issues. Number two, they were comparing them to doctors who were still in training and not out of training yet. And number three, they, I mean, they just, they, they don't point out that it was minor. They just say um, they're, they're just as good. So, I mean, they take it from this minor way that they looked at something and they extrapolate it to this completely different result. Right. And so uh, you'd sent me the abstract of this. I, I did not get the chance to read the full paper. The one interesting thing I, I saw was that they said, you know, they, they mentioned the P values for length of stay and time time for treatment by junior doctors versus emergency nurse practitioners. They didn't mention a p-value on this claim that double as many errors was not statistically significant. Um, there's certainly a trend there, and that p-value is probably very close to 0.05. You know, it's probably just a hair above 0.05. But I would be very suspicious about something like that. And that just that's not a very methodologically strong study for the reasons that you that that you mentioned and also I think uh I'd be curious to deep dive the uh, the number the numbers on the full text of this I don't have the full text access in front of me right at the moment but I'm awfully suspicious about that uh, about that difference not being statistically significant in fact they don't they don't mention a p value in the abstract is 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 a big red flag yeah I mean it's just a perfect example of what they do all the time is take a study that looks at something very very specific something very minor and then say look they can do the same in any setting and it's just so outlandish and the fact of is that you see this all the time in the propaganda is we can do the same thing we we're as good or better but nobody's deep diving into that data to say okay well yeah maybe they can do just as good of a job if they're doing telephone triage or if they are, have a doctor working right next to them, or if it's extremely minor and self-limited problems, which right. very well could be the case. So let's jump over to talk about a little bit more about the follow-up to your podcast that you did with Rick Bucata. And I wanted to ask you, were you surprised that he really agreed with pretty much everything that you had to say? 
I, I was surprised a little bit. I think that um, I was kind of a little scratching my head. It's like, well, if you, if you agree with me so much, then why were uh, Mike and Martha on, on your podcast, uh, you know, s- saying these things? But I was a little surprised by by the things that they said. One thing about Rick is that, and he runs uh, some courses for NPs and PAs, uh, a boot camp. Uh, emergency medicine. The tagline for my podcast, EM Basic, is your boot camp guide to emergency medicine. I don't claim to be able to get you up to an attending level of knowledge uh, just by listening to some podcasts. And I, I don't get me wrong. I think what Rick's does has value. And I think that more education is always best. And so if you want to go on these courses, better, better yourself and, and, you know, get smarter for patients. Great. And I support that. But what you can't do is then say, well, I'm, I have physician level training and I should be able to practice independently. So it was a little bit of a surprise that, that Rick agreed with so many of my points, but I, I thought it was good to, to see that, you know, I think he also kind of perfectly demonstrated that how complicated this issue can be is that, you know, there are nuances to this that people just don't, most people don't understand. Absolutely. It is complicated. But one other kind of surprise and a positive surprise is that one thing that emergency doctors were unhappy about is that they were paying more money for the same CME content as other staff members like nurse practitioners or physician assistants. So a lot of doctors did not like that and wrote and asked, you know, why is that? And just, I think it might've even just been in the last couple of days, MRAP just put out a notice that they have now decided that the rate is going to be the same for everyone. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm glad that they did that. And uh, I'll admit, I I dropped my subscription over those concerns a a while back too. And uh, basically, you know, when people have expressed that to the MRAP leadership, they're just get they get told, well, MPs and PAs earn less than physicians. So, but it really kind of rubs physicians the wrong way. It's like I'm I'm subsidizing. I'm directly subsidizing other practitioners who, let's get real, like want to take my job and and be in, and practice independently when it's when I don't think it's safe. So I think that just kind of really rubs physicians the wrong way. And um, I'm not, you know, I, I don't think there's a straight line between my episode and them doing that. But I think they've encountered pressure for a while uh, to change that. I mean, it was all on. The, I think it was it, it was either a difference of a hundred or two hundred dollars. For, so it was four ninety five for physicians. It was either two ninety five or three ninety five for MPs and PAs, and so that just really kind of rubbed people the wrong way because it's the exact same content. Um, and so it's you know with independent practice, you know, you should probably just pay the same amount that everyone else does. Well, what I really like is just the fact that we're seeing some response to pressure from physicians and that doctors are starting to speak out. And that's one thing I wanted to say to you, Steve, is that. I think a lot of us are just so impressed with the fact that you did take the time and the effort to talk about this issue. And as you mentioned, this issue is delicate and it can be taken the wrong way. And some physicians are very afraid to speak out because they fear that they may face some kind of retribution or job loss. So tell me, what is it that makes you brave that you feel comfortable other than, you know, of course, just being diplomatic and speaking the truth? How are you so brave and how can other doctors learn to speak from their heart as well? Uh, I mean, I, I don't really see myself as brave on this. I just see myself as understanding the issues. And I told myself going into it, I would just talk facts. And if I had an opinion, I would state that I had an opinion. And so I, it goes back to if you start name calling, you, you've lost the battle. 
And you could probably get, you'll get in trouble for that. If you start degrading other professions, you're going to get in trouble with that. And you, and you should. But when you go by the facts and then just state your opinion that I don't think nurse practitioners and PAs are sufficiently trained to practice independently. I mean, it's a controversial statement, but like, it's something that I don't think is necessary. It's not mean on its face. It's, um, you know, certainly one could argue that, am I putting myself at some sort of professional risk by saying this? I, I, I guess, but you know, it's like, we need to have a conversation about this. And I felt like it was important enough that I just felt like I had to speak out on it. And uh, I would encourage others to do the same and just be very clear. And I think one of the things that you can do is just be very clear. I'm not anti-MP. I'm not anti-PA. I just don't agree with independent practice. Let's talk about it and let's see what the issues are. And frankly, I believe that a lot of NPs and PAs agree with the stance of not wanting to have independent practice. Many of them really, they've expressed to me that they really like having a physician that they can work with and have as backup. And also that many of them have experience that they've been taken advantage of by corporations and by centers. So, you know, if anything, this is probably something that a lot of us can agree upon. The challenge is that many of them are facing retribution if they speak out. And so I've spoken with many people off the record where they've said, I would be run out on a rail if I had the audacity to say something. So the more though that we speak out about these things, the really the better patient care that we're going to be able to achieve. I agree. And, you know, so I'm an academic doc and I feel like as an academic doc, I have maybe a little more protection, although not. So technically I'm I'm employed by team health. So I, to be clear, I don't represent them. These are my own thoughts. I think that's pretty clear, but I'm still an academic doc at heart. And I think I can probably put this into context of, well, you know, like this is academic freedom. Like I should be able, I should be allowed to talk about these controversial subjects and talk about the data around them and about the facts around them without name calling. And, you know, if I get, if I engage in name calling, then yeah, you know what, like I should get in trouble for that. But if I'm, I'm just presenting facts. Like it is a fact. The minimum number of clinical hours from MP is 500. It's 2000 for a PA. It's many more for a physician. Like these are facts. They are not in dispute. And so you just keep it factual. And I feel like that's the way to approach this. Well, thank you so much for saying that. And I hope that you've inspired other physicians to also be able to just speak the truth professionally and positively so that we're really just here so that we can work together to provide patients with the best care. Because like I always say, you know, we may be physicians, but we are also patients. If we're not now, we certainly are going to be one day. And so that's, that's really the biggest thing that I worry about. I know one day I'm going to roll in on a gurney and I want to look up and make sure that there is a physician around that can take care of me uh, if needed. And absolutely. It's something that if we don't take action, there is a threat that that may not continue. And some people think that's hyperbole, but it's really not because uh, look at uh, just outside of Oklahoma City and the Alexis Ochoa case. And as far as I understand, Mercy Health Systems continues to put nurse practitioners alone in emergency departments, and they're not the only ones. This is happening in corporations and settings across the country. That's unfortunate, and I think it needs to stop. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time and for sharing this information. If you'd like to learn more, I encourage you to get our book. It's called Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at Amazon and at barnesandnoble.com. And I would love for you, if you're a physician, to consider joining our group. It's called Physicians for Patient Protection. And you can learn about how you can be more active in advocating for physician-led care. Our website is physiciansforpatientprotection.org. 
Thanks so much, Dr. Carol, and we'll see you on the next podcast. 